0: I'm actually really excited because just last week I Googled what would Shane Willard say? Does he have any teachings on what would Shane Willard Romans say? 13? Okay. So I'm struggling in this political climate with certain believers who think that. You know, like, uh, they have almost this king perspective Mm -hmm. on the presidency, for example. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm trying to understand, because I believe there's a scriptural answer for this, and I know that we take so many things out of context and and don't have a proper understanding. So I've been trying to understand Romans 13. And I know some people say that it might even be an interpolation. Yeah. Is Romans 13 the one that says the the authorities that be are ordained of God and we should um, honor them, give them due respect? Right. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, a a couple things. That's a good example of a great question, actually. So, um, so I don't claim I can solve that, but just to say um, that most of the New Testament is resistance literature against Caesar. So, actually, all four Gospels are written as competing biographies to the claims, the propaganda made about Caesar. Uh, Revelation, I, I, I made a joke about it earlier, About you know that the part in Revelation is, uh and by the way, if, you want great, if you're a reader, you want great for the reading, there's a, a historian named David De Silva, and he wrote a book called Unholy Allegiances, and it's a book about first century Roman government in Asia Minor, and, and, and by the way, I read this book, which is why I'm single, and because um, when you read books like that, you don't have a lot of luck with the ladies, and the, um, I'm joking, anyway, so, uh, I'm, I'm joking, I'm single because I can't date on the road, uh, anyway, so, anyway, so, I can't be known as the pastor that takes women out, it doesn't work, so, the, the unholy allegiance is, is him breaking down first century Roman government practices in Asia Minor and how it affects the book of Revelation. And it is brilliant. And so, like, give you an example. The great whore of Babylon, where it says, he says, I saw a great whore coming down on a horse to a city of seven hills. There's actually money with that picture. um, Because what they believed in Rome was, was that Caesar was God. and And that Caesar being God in flesh was empowered by being filled with the spirit of the goddess Roma. Um, so, Rome got its name from a, an ancient king named Romulus, but then Roma was the goddess of virtue, who evidently her spirit would fill the Caesar and empower him to be God on earth. And so, and they, they, they stole her as the goddess of virtue. So, the money on the back of the coin, for instance, of, of, uh, of Trajan was you have this goddess of virtue sitting on a horse descending onto the city of seven hills there were seven mountains on the back of this coin and so and so john says john says oh and i saw a great whore descending on a horse to the city of seven hills this is massive in your face like like you think the goddess that empowers your your king um, is filled with virtue. Not only is she not virtuous, she's a whore. Like this is like, this is like massive in-your-face stuff. So, so the Bible has some tension with that. In one sense, you have all of this resistance literature. Philippians is a great example of that. Like um, Nero was the was the king, the Caesar who put Paul in jail, and Nero made everybody address him with two words: Curios and Soter, Lord and. Savior, and so it, it, even his wife, if, if she wrote him, she had to say, my Lord and Savior, I compel you, I beseech you, I, I, I ask for your attention. And when he wrote her back, he would say, your Lord and Savior compels you. There was all these forced Olympic-style games all over the Roman Empire with forced pledges of allegiance to our Lord and Savior Nero. So so when Paul, who's chained to a wall, being tortured on a systemic basis, eventually is going to die at the hands of the death penalty at the hands of Nero in around 63 AD, when he writes Philippians, which is going to be censored by the Roman guard, and he says, oh, grace and peace be to you from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, this is not a bullet Point for a pamphlet, this is up your caesar you 're not going to get the last word here and, and, and if you read all the way to the end of Philippians, this is how he ends it. All the saints in Rome greet you, especially those of caesar 's household <laughs> See, right? which oh, would have caused an inc- an internal investigation like you can 't believe how much he was he was uh, screwing with these people, and so you go. You go, wow, so you, you have that tension mixed with, mixed with this um, compulsion to honor. I think, I think the key to the whole thing is understanding the concepts of honor and respect and the difference in the gap between honor, respect, and affirmation. And so, so should we always honor our leaders? Of course, because you should honor everybody. Should we always res- treat our leaders with respect? Of course, because you should treat all people with respect. But there's a difference between honor, respect, and affirmation, just like there's a difference between accepting all people and affirming everything they do. Like, like if, if, if we don't, if, if, we don't um, if we see acceptance of all people as affirming everything they do, that's a real problem, because I accept all of you. I do. But I don't necessarily affirm everything you get up to. Like, let me give you an example. I absolutely do not affirm gluttony as a lifestyle choice. I think eating 5000 calories a day for a long period of time will be detrimental to your health. But I accept you if that's your issue. So I can accept you fully without necessarily affirming all your behaviors. And I think, I, I think the gap and the tension between that is making sure we speak respectfully and honorably without necessarily crossing the line into affirming things that obviously shouldn't be affirmed. And that's not just something that we do with leaders, that's something we do with eating habits, it's something we do with lifestyle choices, it's stuff we do with, um, it's stuff we do with what we watch on television. I fully accept you, but I, I I would bet if I know everything you watch on TV, I probably wouldn't affirm all of it. Um, and so we, we, you know, we 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 deal with that tension all the time. And and I think this is just another example of something we deal with the tension of. Uh so I'm actually pretty excited about this because I read this verse in the Bible probably about six years ago, and I've just asked God, "What is this?" And I've tried to study from people and it, I really it, hope I know this. Okay, so, <laughs> so um, I understand the Old Testament was not actually written in English. So uh, obviously that, that's some translation issues. So uh, Exodus three, and it's the section where Moses is, is coming back and uh, is basically, it, it seems to me like the spirit of God is like about ready to kill him. And uh, his wife circumcises his son really quick Puts the foreskin on his foot and on says, foot. "You're a bl- bl- bridegroom of blood to me." What is yeah. that? Yeah, it's it's a really it's a really weird passage of scripture, right? Yes. Like, because because I, I wouldn't want anybody rubbing my foot with their foreskin. Yes. Like, it's exactly. Just, um, yeah. <laughs> like it, it totally violates the do unto others thing. Like, <laughs> yes. You know? Exactly. Like when I stay in people's houses and their little dogs lick my feet, I don't like that much less somebody. <laughs> hey, let me just hear it. Yeah. <laughs> um, So. Please help me understand. Yeah, I, I, once again, I can't solve that whole thing because the, the bigger answer is I'm not sure, but I can I can add to the discussion. So, so when when Jews read the Bible, they read it through four levels. Um, so, for the nerds, those names of those levels are Peshat, Ramez, Drash, and Sud. If you're not a nerd, it's one, two, three, four. Now, <laughs> and so... And this is very difficult for us because we tend to read literature through one level. Maybe two. We we go, is this fiction or nonfiction? And actually Christians are notorious for panicking over fiction, which is a whole nother level of what the heck? I mean, people go, Shay. Do you think God's an African American woman, you know, like the guy in the shack said? I'm like It's he's making him like how weird are you right like um uh, so or or the, the the Da Vinci Code you know shit yeah I mean I mean they, <laughs> CNN had Dan Brown on and the guy said listen people of faith are panicking you're claiming that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene what evidence do you have of that you know and Dan Brown said well I, actually I brought the book um. On the binder, on the outside, at the bottom, it's it it says fiction. <laughs> so, so we we tend <laughs> it's like don't, don't, you know? Um. So we tend to say fiction, nonfiction, fact, and then we read at one level. So, so the Jews read in four, and so the four levels are peshat. Peshat is what plainly is going on. Obviously, Moses is coming back to. Uh, participate in something uh, quite profound, the liberation of slaves from Egypt into freedom. Uh, but then the second level is remes. Ramesses or hints, are an allusion. And they, they don't necessarily have to be literal. But the problem with reading ancient literature is there's no such thing as fiction and nonfiction until about 1300. So it was perfectly appropriate to put a fictional story in the middle of historical narrative if it exacerbated the meaning of what the story was trying to communicate. So in ancient history, meaning trumps details. So as long as the meaning was getting put across, you could add details that made the meaning come across, and that was not considered not credible. Whereas today that would be considered completely not credible. And so so what you have going on there is you have this Peshat where Moses is coming back. Obviously, something is going on um, that is strange, but but I'm not sure. the an- The big answer is I'm not sure. But the the, the the to add to the discussion, what could be happening is the writer, the writer is putting this detail in about circumcision and foreskins as a remez to remind the current readers about the tribal. Uh, the, the tribal grace of God that was presented to Abraham and making sure that they didn't lose. Because when, when those readers would have read that, they would have just instantly thought Abraham. And so it could be something that literally happened. It could. It absolutely could be. I don't know. But it also could be something, a detail the writer added to the story in order to make sure that the readers understood that this was somehow bringing this guy back under Abraham's thing to say, to say this is, this is, this is Abraham's guy as much as Abraham was Abraham's guy, despite his past, despite his mistakes, despite the fact that he premeditated and murdered a guy, that despite all of that, that, that same tribal thing is standing between him and God, just like it did for Abraham. And so, might it be literal? Yes, it it very well could be. Might it be a ramez that was meant to... Um, add meaning to the story, yes, I I, I think that, well, I'll pick something that I think is literal, like I think the cross of Jesus Christ is literal, I think Jesus actually died, Um, and I think the resurrection is literal, I think Jesus rose from the dead, literally, but all the power is in the meanings of that like if all we do if all we care about is whether jesus literally rose why not just worship lazarus like he rose first and and there's a way here's what i mean by that there's a way that someone could spend their whole life trying to prove that jesus literally rose from the dead and then successfully do so and still miss the whole point so so the way the way truth works is truth has to have three legs to it. And if you remove any of the three legs, the truth loses part of its power. So, the first leg is the literal, right? So, or the objective. Something happened. Um, Moses, M- Moses needed something to happen for him and God to be on the same team again, right? So, or, or Jesus dies on the cross, or Jesus rose from the dead, or Jesus told a story, right? So sometimes the literal is fiction. So, for instance, the parable of the prodigal son is fiction, but it's literal in the sense that Jesus told the story. So, so there's a literal version of there's a literal facet of truth. But then beyond that, there is a meaning or a symbolic facet to truth, right? So, so did Jesus die on the cross? Yes. Did did he rise? Yes. But there's more meanings than there. somebody asked me to Q and A one time. Was the was the cross and resurrection um, literal or just symbolic? Was the cross and resurrection literal or just symbolic? And I just said, well, that's not an intelligent way to ask the question. If you're going to use the word "just," you have to say, is it just literal or does it have symbolism? Because if something's just something, then it's just literal. The symbolic is actually bigger than the literal. Like, like, uh, like, this is why this is why the cross the the, the New Testament writers struggled to even put words around the meaning of the cross. So one writer says it's the cancellation of debt, one says it's the forgiveness of sins, one says it's the confrontation to oppression, one, right? Because, be, because the cross is not something that has meaning, the cross is something that defies meaning. For the God of the universe to humble himself, put on flesh, allow himself to be killed at the hands of a local government um, for the sake of all of humanity does not have one meaning, it has lots right? And so, resurrection the same, like death doesn't get the last word, like new creation can burst forth in the middle of this one, like everybody gets fresh starts and second chances, right? So, so you have the literal, then you have the meaning, and then beyond that, you have the eventual nature of truth. So, eventual means that something happened, and it's not that we believe it. it it's more profound than that. We do believe it, but it's like, the cross and resurrection shouldn't just simply be something we believe in. It should be an event that fundamentally shifts the way we see our whole world, right? So, so you have those three natures. If I could illustrate this with a, a baby, a new life, right? So if your wife gives birth to a baby, right? So the wife says, oh, she gives birth, right? And then, they, they, and then they, they, they wipe the baby off, and they do whatever they do, right? And then they hand the baby to the mom. And at some point, they hand the baby to the father, right? And the father says, oh, she's the most beautiful girl in the whole wide world, right? Well, what if someone was standing there going, really? Prove that literally. (laughs) Because actually, there's going to be a lot of girls that are prettier than her. And there's going to be a lot of girls that are uglier than her. Shouldn't you be saying she's the most average girl in the whole world, right? Well, you wouldn't even know what to say to that because... You're using meaning. It's, it's like this girl, I'm not talking literally. This girl, the presence of her life redefines beauty to me, right? And so, so you have the literal and then the meaning. But then what if you get her home, right? And so you're, you're driving home, and, and there's, a, there's a sign in your neighbor's yard eight doors down. You never met the person. There's blue balloons, and it says, Welcome to the world, Billy. Well, you could make an assumption that they've had a baby named Billy, and you can fundamentally affirm the existence of the literal baby Billy without Billy meaning anything to you, right? But your baby, you affirm its existence, but it also means something to you. But then, let's say you go home, and every night, you go out with your friends, this is your practice, and you throw darts. That's just your thing, right? Nothing harmful in that. You throw darts. And so the first night back, you go throw darts. The second night back, you go throw darts. Third night back, you go throw darts. Fourth night back, your wife says, excuse me, we have a baby now. Excuse me, we have a baby now. And you go, I know. I fully affirm the existence of that baby. Not only that, she's the most beautiful thing in the whole world to me. But you realize until that new life fundamentally shifts the way you live your whole world, that there's part of that truth that's still missing, right? And so when I think about passages like this, I think about Peshat, Ramez, Drosh, Drosh is the life application, and sued. I think about that. I think about how ancient writers talked about things. I ask questions like, what literally happened? And what part of that might be fiction in order to make a point? Because that was acceptable. But then, once I got past that, I would explore the meanings of it. And I think that's m- more important, I would go, wait a minute, Have I done something that I might feel has separated me from God's tribe and I need to do some ritual, some act to remind myself I'm back in? Not that the ritual does anything. A a, a ritual that is an end to itself is an idol and that's bad, but when a ritual is an icon, that is really good. An idol is something you look at to worship. An icon is something you look at that draws you deeper into the truth of it. And that's what you want so i i would just i i'm just talking out loud off the top of my head i haven't studied the passage but i would go i'd go man have i have i done something like premeditated murdered a guy that i felt away from god and now i'm coming back to god but god is reminding me that until i understand that i'm actually still a part i belong to this tribe regardless of what i've done it's going to feel like he's trying to kill me so i need to get that straight I need to do some ritual that allows me to go deeper. Um, I need to remind myself that blood is blood and God is true, and every man 's a liar, and god God keeps his promises, whether we do or not. and so these are the things I would start going to in my head in order to get to the eventual nature of that passage, which is how is that now going to fundamentally shift the way I see my whole world? H- have I ever accidentally killed somebody? No, Have I ever actually on purpose killed somebody? No, Have my mistakes been less severe than that? Yes so. So if I feel separated from God, how how how, um, how dumb is that when there's this offer that goes all the way back to Abraham for, for, for me to be a part of his group? And, um, yeah, that's just me talking off the top of my head about it. Uh, mine's on the the third uh, misinterpretation with the historical arc. Mm. Um, so it's real easy to, like, look back at something like Abraham and be like, well, they were sacrificing children, and that switched yeah, to an and animal. Would, and then yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah how do we this really rare, but how do we read scripture in a way of understanding that we still er, are in the arc of history right. and stop ourselves from being on the wrong side when we look back right like you know 1500s christians would be like yeah slavery is cool like we're all yeah. down with this but yeah looking back we're like no that was a correct yes and how do we stop ourselves today from having that when we don't even know what those issues will be really yeah i think i think you're making a great point that I think the, if someone said to me, what's the biggest evidence for God existing in the world? I think the biggest evidence that God exists is not all this stuff you hear. It's why when you YouTube this stuff you're bored to tears. I think the biggest evidence that God exists is the gradual evolution of human consciousness getting better and better and better and better. And better. In the, in a literal sense, historical arc. To quote Martin Luther King Jr., uh, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Um, I think that the, if we went to dinner with our great-grandfather in today's restaurants and he just said whatever was on his mind, most of us would cringe at 90% of it. Um, and it's because, so, like, you realize an atheist today would never treat women like Moses thought was a good idea in Deuteronomy 21, right? Why? Because consciousness has just moved past that. Like, when I hear Christians go, oh, can you believe how bad this world's getting? I'm like, what are you talking about? Read a history book, Man. There's literally nothing worse than it was 400 years ago. Nothing. 400 years ago, British priests were cutting women's ears off in public to make them less attractive to avoid the lust and the potential act of adultery in order to save their soul for eternity. And people go, oh, this world's crazy today. No, that was crazy. (laughs) Hey, 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 anybody want to go to the public hanging tonight? Nobody? Oh, good. Anybody want to go to the public disembowelment of the village betrayer? Right? This stuff used to go on. You know, know, the the forced, the the forced anal rape of young boys was both legal and encouraged in first century Corinth in order to practice the art of dual-souling so that you could be like Caesar and develop bisexuality in a 50-50 way on the inside. You believe how crazy this world is, you know? I mean, average life expectancy in Jesus' day was 32. By 1550, it was 37. 1850 is 43. 1925, we finally made it to 50. That was only in the Western world. Global life expectancy didn't cross 50 years old until 1948. That's within my father's lifetime. <laughs> it's just, is God done redeeming long life? No. Is it better? Yeah. Medicine? Would you, would you rather have dental work today or in 1950? or 1850. Today, they numb your mouth with Novocaine. 1850, they numbed it with whiskey. Novocaine's better. (laughs) Would you rather have a colonoscopy today, or in 1950? But just, just in terms of social consciousness, like, <laughs> like would you rather be a woman today or in 1950? I can show you a news clip from 1961 where a news channel was debating whether it was a waste of time for women to go to university because they have their jobs. If I played it, we'd all be cringing, but 1961, that was like an actual round table debate that was happening. 1921, that debate didn't happen. And people like my grandmother would have been stuck with potentially awful men, you know, because what, 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 what choice, what, what, you know. It wasn't until 1969 that you didn't have to present both sides with fault to get away from somebody. People go, oh, you believe how bad this, what are you talking about? A woman could have went in 1954 and said, and said, my husband is going to kill me, and if he's not there to tell his side of the story, the judge wouldn't let her out of it. Um, it's not good. So, so just think about, think about the ways, and I, I'm doing this with the utmost of sensitivity, okay? Think about the ways women were talked about just 70 years ago versus just that, just that alone, or or African Americans. Think about the words that were used just 70 years ago, or sooner than, or more recent, 50, 40 years ago, and some really low-class people might still use it today. Um, think about the degrading thing that, that, that in, it is still happening, but it's, it's, it's less and less and less. It's, it, social consciousness has journeyed past that, even for people who don't know Jesus at all. And so God's at, God's at work, God's at work with that kind of thing. And I think he's making, my, my friend here's making a good point, and that is this, is that I love the way N.T. Wright says it. I think he said it in the book, Scripture and Authority. But he says that, that Scripture is only authoritative to the point that it filters through the character of the risen Christ, for the risen Christ is the final word of God. And I think we have to pay attention to what the Spirit of God is doing in our heart. This, and we do this anyway. Like, this is why none of you ladies feel guilty about not wearing a head covering. Even though the Bible in the New Testament clearly says too. But none of you feel guilty. I don't see anybody with tassels on the corners of their garments, even though it's clearly commanded in Numbers 15. Like, all, all, all of us do this, do this normally until it's something that really violates our conscience. And then, then we go, oh, well, oh, you know, what about this? But even the most good-hearted person, even the most well-intentioned person who wants to live like the Bible static, they can't. They can't all you guys at some point in the last week shaved the side of your face, that's forbidden. I mean, none of us tonight would think we'd be okay killing someone if we found out their DNA match was from the tribe of Amalek, <laughs> right? A- anybody in here okay with inducing the capital punishment of death penalty for anybody that doesn't take Saturday off? Anybody? Right, even, right? Like, like, like we, we know, even the most sincere person who thinks God wrote the Bible can't live by all that. Because society and social consciousness has journeyed past that, and, and we, need to, we need to thank God for that because God, never, God did not finish redeeming the world when the last book of the Bible was put into the Bible in the late 300s by a council of people. And, that, and, and that's a beautiful thing, and we need to embrace that. That's a great observation. Yeah. We are constantly told you know, that God won't make you sick. God won't bring disaster on you. God it, that can't be ascribed to God. Mm. But it, in Isaiah mm. prophetic book. Yeah. I am the Lord, I say. Yeah. You know, God specifically says, you know, I form light and create darkness. My I make goodness and I create disaster. Create disaster, that's right. Yeah. What what how do we how do we bring that into context? Does God give us sickness? Does he create disaster in our life? Um, well, I think, I think it's important that, first of all, the first premise, I think is, I think is bupkis. I think the thought that, because it sounds like this, right? And, and I agree with you, it gets subtly intimated. And in some places, not so subtly, where they go, it sounds almost like this. If you just had enough faith, you wouldn't be sick. If you just had enough faith, your children wouldn't be struggling. If you just had enough faith, your marriage could work. You could change him. You know, or, like if you just had enough faith, right, if you just had and 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 there's a word for that. It's Latin. Bullimus crapamus. Okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> like that is not true. It's not true scripturally. It's not true experientially. It's not true in in any in any sense of the word. The truth is, if you take the whole counsel of Scripture, at least as I see it, and I'm open to being I, I, I'm open to the discussion. But if you take the whole counsel of Scripture, what you find is actually that certainty is a sin. That faith is not a belief system that allows us to be certain. But a system that allows us to trust in spite of uncertainty. And so, faith is not actually the more certain your faith is, the more fragile it is, the more the the, the more brick wall it becomes. The more all you have to do is put one little thing right. And so, and, and this is this is why this is why the the first belief system that was events which he had every, which he is right about that does get said. I think it's very important that we actually find the sacred and find the presence of God in our doubts. And in the, what you see in scripture is a clear mandate to not intellectualize suffering, but actually to sit in the quiet in the middle of it. And that's where God is. Like when Paul, when Paul was chained to a wall, right? He's gonna die. You realize they didn't have jails in the first century for criminals. If you committed a crime, they beat you. If you're in jail in the first century, you're on death row. You're it's you're an enemy of the state. And so Paul, Paul's chained to this wall, and he's going to die. And he says, "This will turn out for my deliverance." Remember, so, uh, Philippians one nineteen. This will turn out for my deliverance. And of course, does it? No, he died. And so, if you def- if, if we define that as this will turn out for my deliverance, is having enough faith to get out of the situation. We missed the whole point, because to a first century rabbi, this will turn out for my deliverance, is a quote from the poem, Job. <laughs> and where, they're, they're, what happens in that poem is his friends are trying to intellectualize suffering. They actually go biblical on him. They, they go biblical, they go, well, if you had enough faith, this wouldn't happen, maybe you don't have enough faith. He goes, no, not that. Well, if you did, that, well, it's not that. And then they say, it's, it's something you did. The way God works, the way God works, for this to be happening, you had to do something bad. And Job, actually the poem Job, is about the wisdom of kicking against traditional wisdom to say, I know that's what you've thought your whole life, but this is not true. And Job says in Job 13, he says, if God kills me, that's God's business, and above my pay grade, I'll still trust in him. But when I see him, I can argue my ways to his face. In, in other words, I, if God kills me, that's up to God, but ah. Uh, it won't because of something I did. And then, and then he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. So the phrase, this will turn out for my deliverance, was a specific wisdom phrase from the Hebrew scriptures that was a declaration that I will resist the urge to try to figure suffering out, and I will keep my hands clean, my heart pure, and my taste sweet in the middle of it, and that will be, so when Paul is writing the Philippians, and he says, this this will turn out for my deliverance, it's Paul giving a testimony of commitment to a church he started, that even if I die in this, I will keep my hands clean, my heart pure, and my taste sweet that the 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 mandate in scripture as a whole is to understand mostly that the good comes and the bad comes and that god is god is not a single imperial image but rather a relationship a flow between three and that god is flowing through our lives in the good and god is flowing through our lives in the bad and in that in that we can be free from the pursuit of intellectualizing suffering and allow ourselves to just go through it for this will turn out for my deliverance it's actually christianity is not a freedom to pursue all the answers or that thing F- christianity is a freedom from the pursuit of that and and that That is, like, Jesus didn't die to fix a problem. Jesus died to obliterate the idea that the problem was ever there. That God, God loved you before the foundation of the world. The cross did not inaugurate that new reality. The cross simply just showed you what it was always like. And so for everybody trying to figure out what was the problem between me and God, the cross was the freedom from the pursuit of the answer to that, and rather a, a, a freedom to just be in it. And, and I think that is a much better way to live than making rules that as soon as we find one exception to it, it obliterates people's faith. And, uh, and I think you're on the right track there. I think you should struggle with that. I think you should resist that. And it's not resisting Christianity. It's only resisting the image of Christianity that was presented to some people. And, and some, sometimes people go, well, I'm, I'm resisting Christianity. No, you're not. You're just resisting what Christians should have been resisting for a long time. And, um, and I, think, I think it's beautiful. I think it's brilliant. Thanks for being here for two hours and 22 minutes tonight. I hope, I hope Jesus got bigger. I hope the cross worked better. I hope the resurrection's central. Um, I hope Scriptures got bigger, not smaller. Uh, the way we support ourselves is by faith. We do not make demands on anything. And as Jacob said, uh, there's offerings up here that's how we'll support ourselves. Um, on your way out. Um, it's a bit late now, but obviously if you come by and avail yourself to our resources, that's how we support our orphanages. Actually, I was very moved. A lady was here tonight uh, with one of our orphans from China. She adopted him, and she was sitting in the back there. And, uh, she said, oh, this was from one of your orphanages, and uh, I was like, oh, my goodness. So uh, it was quite moving, actually. So um, I, th- I-, I look forward to the journey with Courage Church. Um, uh, I'll-, I'll be talking to Jacob. If you guys want to have us come back, we'll come yeah. back and teach, and um, just have a good time exploring the infinite possibilities of what the risen Christ has for us. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless Shame, thank you.